Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Helen Pluckrose. I've just um, published Cynical Theories with James Lindsay, which is looking at the problem of um, social justice scholarship and activism and how it's affecting us. And I'm the editor of Aereo magazine, which I would love you all to read. I'm Colette Colfer. Hello. If... <laughs> I'm Terry. <laughs> <laughs> He's the voice usually behind the scenes. If you're a regular, you'll notice that, well, first of all, you don't normally hear him. And second of all, that my voice sounds different. That's because I'm recording this introduction in a different place to usual. It's September 2020 and I've moved back to Waterford City in the southeast of Ireland for school and work. I did do the interview with Helen with our usual top-notch microphone, but this bit is from my laptop. So I'm in Waterford and Terry, where are you? Wild West Wicklow. So hello to Wild West Wicklow. Helen Pluckrose has already introduced herself. In this episode, we mainly chat about the book Cynical Theories that she mentioned. She'll also touch on topics such as problems in academia, third level education, in the political left. Also, we'll talk about unconscious bias, group identity, the best way to tackle racism, Kafka traps, the rise of victimhood culture and the importance of civil conversation. Just also to point out that the interview you're about to hear was recorded on a Sunday afternoon. I was in West Wicklow, where Terry is now, and Helen was in London. She was chatting to me from her home there, so you will hear some background Sunday afternoon household sounds on her microphone. So you've co-authored this book, Cynical Theories, with somebody called James Lindsay. Yeah. How do you and James know each other? Uh, we took part in together. Well, we were writing together for quite a while before that, but we are we worked most closely together on the grievance studies um, uh, affair, as it was known, when we um, we were quite concerned about some of the scholarship and coming out of. Um, various sort of identity and cultural studies. And so we wrote some papers bringing together um, some of the worst ideas that we um, have ever, you know, that, that we've come across and, and used them to make really terrible arguments and um, sent them to journals and, and got seven of them accepted. And so now we have a lot of enemies because... <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, we we were first we first knew each other in the in the whole sort of new atheist moment when we were quite critical of of religion for its um, lack of evidence and its um, illiberal ethics. So this is really more of the same, but in a different direction. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that's how you got to know each other first in the new atheist movement, and then that led into the grievance studies, and from there into this book. Yes. So, um, I mean, I saw the, the grievance studies, the, the hoax papers that you did in 2017, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, we revealed it in October 2018. And at the point when you did that, had you already got the plan in your mind for this book, Cynical Theories? No, no, we hadn't. But um, we'd always been writing essays about it. And then after we finished the project, we wanted something to really break down and explain what we had been writing, what was out there, how it worked. And um, yeah, so so that people could actually have a better understanding of of what it was we did and why it matters. Right. And uh, why do you think it does matter? I think it's um, a problem primarily for the humanities and for the political left, because it's a really it's working on a really shoddy epistemology. It's, you know, how how do we know what is true? And for for us and, and for the majority of people, I think we know whether things are true to the best of our ability by how well they're evidenced. This isn't what is happening within this kind of scholarship. We're hearing that um, a reliance on evidence and reason and science and liberalism are all white Western male constructs that have been unfairly prioritised. So we think that that is quite a, a harmful um, attitude. Obviously, all kinds of arguments can be made, but we're going to defend evidence, reason and liberalism. So that is um, is what we're we're doing against this really, really illiberal and irrational ideology that's that's getting far too much institutional power. Yeah, it's it's quite intolerant. And like you point out in the book, it's spread far beyond the academy now. It's pretty much mainstream at the moment. Yeah, it's it's definitely the the dominant um, progressive ideology. And I don't think it is properly progressive at all. I I think it's recreating um, old uh, binaries and stereotypes that we had really advanced quite far in overcoming, which we still have to overcome. But um, this is is taking us backwards, I think, in, in gender relations, in race relations, in the acceptance of LGBT rights. It's um, it's a really counterproductive uh, system. Actually, one of the points you make quite early on in the book is that it is it's feeding the far right. I, I think it certainly is. Yes, I mean it's um, more. Pri- I don't think the far right exists because of of this, obviously. But there's more than there's there's a reason that people are not voting left at the moment. Both America and the UK have seen catastrophic losses on the left. We didn't imagine that somebody like Donald Trump could appeal to enough Americans to become um, president with um, Jeremy Corbyn having lost so many um, boroughs that, that have been read for, for so long. There's a real problem on the left. And I, I think that the social justice issue is, is absolutely central to that. It's it's undermining people's confidence in the left. We're not focusing on consistent principles. We're not liberal. We're not focusing on ec- economic issues properly and and this is causing people i believe who are, are wavering in the middle to go right it's one of the things that is that is causing it and it's um, something we're definitely going to have to fix if i want which i do people to vote left again so it's alienating the working class the traditional kind of left yes and and people who are just more generally um sort of liberal, reasonable in, you know, people who want consistent principles of non-discrimination, who want everything to be open to to everyone. I mean, there's something really worrying if the the right-wing parties, which have typically focused much more on hierarchy and um, limited access to various groups, is actually seeming to many people to be more inclusive and more consistent than, than the left. That's that's worrying. <laughs> I've been following you on Twitter for a few years. And one thing that, that I'm always amazed by is the speed at which you read. Am I right in thinking that you read a lot? I, I do. Yes. Yeah. I tend to um, devour books quite quickly. <laughs> so and, and would you have read a lot of the theorists that you talk about in the book then, like Derrida, Foucault, Lyotard? Yes, but I'm, it's better to think of me as going backwards. So, yes, I, I have read the original postmodernists. I, I studied them at undergraduate, wrote about them at both 
undergraduate and postgraduate, but they're not my primary focus. What I am most interested in is the social justice scholarship that exists now. And they are citing those um, original postmodernists. You can trace it back very clearly to them. But what I'm reading in, in most volume is the, the feminist and critical race epistemologists, queer theorists, critical race theorists, um, fat activists, disability activists, because these are the ones who are really representing the evolution of the, those postmodern ideas about knowledge, language and power that are really affecting us right now. Um, could I ask, do you have a favourite theorist? Um, what the, uh, People that I um, actually approve of or the people I'm, I, I could identify as the most troubling? <laughs> uh, I suppose ones that you enjoy and would approve of, yeah. Yeah, I my absolute idol is Mira Nanda. Now, she is a materialist um, post-colonial uh, scholar. So she is um, Indian and she looks at um, at post, uh, post-colonial India, how it is uh, being affected politically, materially, economically. And she has been the staunchest critic of the postmodern approach because she points out, quite rightly, that it's there's a there's a it's kind of perpetuating an orientalism so right at the center of post-colonial theory is this idea of orientalism in which the west has constructed the east as um superstitious and um and religious and illiberal and all these other things so that um the west can think of itself as scientific and rational now that was a, a an oppressive colonialist idea the liberal um attitude which has taken over is that no science and reason and liberalism belong to absolutely everybody everybody can be um, ethical and reasonable everybody can be unethical and unreasonable this isn't a reason this is a racist um, sort of uh, distinction that that was made by the colonialists but what we're seeing in post-colonial theory is a a maintaining of that um, distinction, a claim that that science and reason do belong to the West, that liberalism does, that that other ways of knowing belong to um, black and brown people, and that uh, we need to appreciate them more. This is what all the um, spit the talk of decolonizing knowledge, decolonizing the curriculum is about, and that um, that I think that's quite appalling, and and so does Mira Nanda, um, who argues. Um, consistently that that actually you know india and um the rest of the world are also doing science they're also using reason they're not some um superstitious um it's almost this sort of noble savage thing and it's really it's really i, I think deeply offensive and deeply harmful talk to me talk to you talk to me In the subtitle to your book, it has how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender and identity. And I wanted to ask, I know this is a kind of a deceptively simple question in a way, but I also think it can be quite well for me. I find it complex thinking about this. But what is identity? Well, I, I think in, in the context that we're, we're looking at it at the moment, it's um, what uh, tribe you consider yourself to belong to. So for the identity scholars or the cultural scholars, identity is very much linked to immutable characteristics like race, sex, gender identity, um, sexuality, and um, trying to get the kind of political empowerment by focusing in a collected and organised way within those groups. Right, so it moves beyond the individual. So... um, I, I like the thing I think that confuses me is that if I identify as something doesn't necessarily mean I am something or it, it, it's it's reified. You use that term actually in the book. Yes, I, I think, you know, identity is something that that is important to to people. And I don't think there is any real problem, you know, for, for somebody who is, say, a black Brit and they are. Um, they have a sort of pride in, say, a Nigerian heritage and also a British heritage and, and a certain type of music. You know, th- this is um, this is what humans do. We, we identify with certain groups. There isn't a problem with that. What I see the problem as is 
the current critical social justice is putting so much social significance back into these categories. The liberal aim has always been to remove it. You know, you, you, who you are is important to you. You can tell your friends about it. You can tell people. You can identify with it. But nobody else can look at you and say, oh, you're a woman. You should have this role in life. You're black. You should have that role in life. You know, everybody should have access to everything. And what we're seeing now is an explicit criticism of the idea that we need to focus less on identity and more on individuality and more on shared humanity, which was the essence of liberalism, wanting to reverse that and, and focus almost entirely on identity and power structures which arrange identities hierarchically. I think it brings out the worst of human nature. And one of the things as well is about language and the power that language has. Now, I would often talk to people about this and I would say, well, there is an objective reality, but they might say, well, you only know that objective reality through the language that you use and the concepts that you have. So how do you respond to that when somebody says that? Well, that that's quite, you know, in, that's true, but that truth is, is really quite banal, despite the fact that we have always been limited by the concepts we have and the words that we have to describe them, plus the reality that we cannot always convey everything as clearly as we mean to and misinterpretations are something that are always going to happen. We have generally managed to communicate um, sufficiently in order to advance society in both scientific and technological ways and in the ways of, of human rights. The idea that um, we need to be careful with with language that it isn't perfect that we can be biased is is certainly something we should hold on to but something we should be aware of but this utter despair of of language and this feeling that um knowledge is created by the way we talk about things and now we have to really focus on how we talk about things and try to find the power dynamics within that and dig them out and dismantle them is really making it extremely difficult for anybody to communicate, for anyone to feel comfortable and confident in raising a point that they have that could be problematic in the first place and for them to be able to be authoritative over what they meant. <laughs> mm. There's a kind of, I think, a lack of common sense <laughs> in it. Yes, there, there's certainly, I mean... There's this concept, we don't hear it a lot now, it, it was very much in, with the first postmodernists, the idea that we defamiliarise things because we just sort of take things for granted. A lot of the postmodern method, methodology was about looking at things anew, not assuming that they're just true, trying to step outside, unfamiliarise, defamiliarise yourself with it and then try to, to look at it and what it's actually doing. So there can be certainly some um, some value in that, but the extent to which it has uh, been taken at the moment when, you know, we have ridiculous situations, um, particularly in something like queer theory, where people are arguing that heterosexuality is a social construct, despite the fact that we're a sexually reproducing species. And I, I've said before that sometimes looking at the, the way that they're addressing things, it almost feels as though they are an alien species, an intelligent species, which has never encountered sexually reproducing animals before and is, is looking at us and is trying to work out how it all works and what's going on. So it's <laughs> it's quite frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that really struck me with the, the hoax papers that you did and in the video, Mike Nana's video, is the sense of humour, like you're having the crack, you're having a lot of laughs <laughs> in the process. So was it actually fun doing those papers? Most of it, I have to admit, was was not fun. Mike um, oh. told us we all happened to be together when um, the, the first paper got in and we'd just had a rather successful talk followed by several glasses of wine. So there was much hilarity that night and we, we did, we did have fun. We had, um, you know, some silly ideas and it was um, all quite exciting. Then one of us had messaged the others going, I know what we need to do, we need to do this. So it was, that was, there was a lot of fun in that, but mostly, um, yeah, it, it was um, quite stressful. Jim read a lot of... Um, the, the theory and, and the the uh, feminist glaciology paper, a very, very famous one, which for 
is just epitomizes the ridiculousness now, of this it. one wasn't this one wasn't one of the hoax papers no no that was right. one <laughs> so, yeah yeah we we wrote one of our astronomy papers which um they were still t- writing to us to ask us to revise it long after we'd revealed the hoax so i don't know what had happened but we based that on the feminist glaciology and and that was essentially an argument that um, a scientific look at glaciers was inadequate and we needed um, feminist um, art projects and things to have a different kind of relationship with ice. It, it was just really silly. But Jim, his name, he, he works like a like a computer mostly and that paper just short-circuited him. So for two days after that, he he just I, he was saying to me, I can't carry on with this. I can't keep reading this stuff. I'm just about to despair of humanity. There's no hope in anything. Oh, so it was God. quite quite stressful a lot of the time, and it was it was quite a lot of work. I mean, we it only took a couple of weeks to write each paper, which shouldn't be the case with actual solid scholarship. But there was a lot of um, of reading and and arguing and um, yeah. It's uh, it's not something I'd I'd suggest many people would enjoy as a hobby. <laughs> and, and so your aim in, in actually doing those grievance studies was to highlight that there was a problem in academia and in these journals. Yeah, I mean, for me, a lot of the motivation was that when I was trying to address them straightforwardly, people would say that I didn't understand the theories or I hadn't read them. And um, or they would say that I was straw manning them and they're, you know, they're only a couple of mad papers out there. And so, yes, I wanted to take part in this project. I think if I can get um, published in these fields, then nobody can say that I don't understand the scholarship. I haven't read a lot of it. I don't know what I'm talking about. And it's going to be harder for people to say this isn't really a problem because we'll have got right into the system. We'll have seen how the reviewers directed us to um, to, to revise our papers. We'd know how it how it worked. We've got hundreds of citations, all of which we cited accurately. So, yes, anybody who really wants to um, go into our papers and look at them in depth will find quite a, a goldmine of, of nonsense there and that there is, a, that as far as I'm aware, there's a feminist um, geography group which is using it for that that purpose because they um have similar concerns with the postmodern approach to their topic <laughs> ah i think out of those grievance uh, studies papers the one that shocked me the most was the one where now i'm not sure was this one the one that uh, one that got published or what how far it got where um white male students were going to be sitting down in a lecture hall draped in chains Yes, that one um, that one had come back to us twice from Hypatia. We were having to rewrite it. So they, they'd said that um, they, they'd responded positively to it. They said that it was something they'd like to see implemented in the classroom. But we were um, still ongoing with, with trying to make all the, the theory meet their um, meet their requirements. So we'd have got there, but we they hadn't accepted it by the time we got found out. But that that one was quite um, that's that's one of the the worst aspects of of this. This is the the idea of the progressive stack, which is a sort of hierarchical sorting system. So we had argued that people's identities should be rated and they should lose points for certain privileged things like being able bodied or heterosexual. They should um, gain points for marginalized um, identities. And then um, the teacher should call upon people in order of their um, identity. So the people who are least uh, privileged would be called on most. The most privileged would not be called on at all. Yes, there would be white men um, sitting on the floor in chains. Also, when they um, made a point, then they would would be mocked and disbelieved because this is believed that that how, how women are responded to so it was one of the darker and, and more sort of ugly um sides of, of this kind of theory which really doesn't have a lot of um compassion for the the average human <laughs> i was looking in ireland just before i chatted to you i i wanted to have a look at what's going on in ireland and how do we know 
if if these theories and if they're being implemented in Ireland, I've no doubt that they are. So, I mean, there are inclusion and diversity workshops and you can get a silver badge, a bronze badge, a gold badge, depending on how many um, of these courses you do. I think there's probably a lot of money in them as well. Mm-hmm. In, uh, where I work, there's um, unconscious bias workshops, which you have to do if you want to be on an interview panel. Now, I don't think is that necessarily a problem? You know, is what what's the story with unconscious bias? Is it good for us to root out our unconscious biases or? I, I think it certainly is. But the unconscious bias um, tests and the, the way that it's done here are, are really um, quite thoroughly debunked. I've just um, my my colleague, Carrie Clark, is um, currently um, compiled an enormous document of all the problems with unconscious bias um, uh, sort of scholarship and, and tests because it's it doesn't actually work in the way that it's supposed to. So implicit bias tests don't actually measure um, how anybody's unconscious bias. There, there doesn't seem to be a connection. You cannot actually tell from what score somebody got in an implicit bias test as how um, racist, for example, their attitudes are when people are asked um, explicitly if somebody says that, yes, they do think um, one race is superior to another. This isn't going to necessarily be reflected in their implicit bias score. It doesn't um, even check out the same way on the same day. It depends. So, so are they are they pointless then? Yes, they're they're not only um, well the, the tests have not been shown to work. They're they're uh, sort of rigorous empirical social scientists have very little respect for the this as a method. The first wave of tests showed some promise. Attempts to um, further them uh, haven't. So. The one of the people, or oh, what's his name? I can send you some information about this because um, I I haven't gone into it in enough detail myself. But as I said, my colleague has, and there's a, a huge document that we're going to present for people who want to challenge this at work. But some the people who have developed these tests have had to admit that they don't actually work for detecting unconscious bias. The um, training in um, actually addressing unconscious bias seems to either have no effect at all or to make people more racist, more conscious of race, and so um, triggering hostility in in what had been previously a more uh, sort of cooperative work environment. It's it's all still quite new, but there isn't any reason to think the implicit association test tests what it thinks it does or that there is anything valuable about this kind of training and it might even be counterproductive ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right, that, that is kind of the idea that. We're, we're categorizing people constantly. And the the Martin Luther King, for example, was the ideal was to move beyond seeing color, whereas now it's like put everybody 
into their box depending on what their skin colour is. So it, it is, it's more divisive then than unifying. Yeah, I mean, the, the two approaches, I think, you know, both the liberal approach and the critical social justice approach, they both accept that we have not entirely overcome all of our biases. You know, there is all, there are stereotypes which associate with women, with um, people of colour, and these do need to be continued to be dismantled. But whereas the liberal approach would um, continue to not see race, to not discriminate by race, and to frown upon anybody who is doing that, the the sort of critical race theory approach wants us to always think about race all the time and to look into every situation as though there is a racial bias there. Their rationale is that unless we are constantly attuned to racism, we won't see it. There'll be plausible deniability. You know, I, I just didn't imply employ that person for, you know, some other reason. It's just a coincidence that I've never um, accepted a black candidate. Or, But in reality, we can measure these things. We can approach them with a consistent and liberal um, stance, there isn't yet any reason to think that the identity politics approach um, decreases racist attitudes any more than the liberal approach does. I'm, I think it will soon be quite clear that the liberal approach actually does considerably better with reducing mm. racism. <laughs> I mean, there is the question, of course, as well, that as human beings, can we ever be really unbiased towards things like our life experience is going to we're, we're going to end up having some level of biases depending probably on what experiences we've had in life or what we've been exposed to so I don't know as humans we're, we're flawed anyway aren't we I think there's always going to be a lot of individual bias I think the critical social justice approach doesn't take that into account at all it right. really looks at group biases and I think there's always going to be um, an in-group and out-group. So studies, psychological studies which have looked at, at this have found that if you tell humans that they are in certain groups with other humans they haven't met before, they will, within a few minutes, start to have a more positive perspective of those in their own team and a negative one of the other team. And this is almost certainly a very hardwired um animal instinct that we have and that we have evolved for good reason. So I think there is a need to recognise that we have that and to try to mitigate it. But this is where I think the critical social justice approach falls down. The liberal humanist approach wants us to try to push out who it is we see as our team. So we stop just thinking, well, it's only the white people, it's only the Christians. It's, you know, we, we expand that to a wider range of, of humanity and we try not to make divisions and let anywhere we, we can help it. But the critical social justice approach is taking entirely the opposite position and it isn't banking on, on human nature, which is going to produce warring tribes. You know, it might be a wonderful ideal for us to just hope that, that humans could overcome this and, and um, you know, to come together to, to defeat racism, even when we're di being divided by race with negative qualities attributed to one. And But I don't think that's a realistic um, possibility. I think the reason that the activism of people like Martin Luther King was so successful because it was universal. It wasn't saying uh, we are a certain people, we have an experience, we have been oppressed uh, by you as a group. It, it was, you have this, you're human, we don't have this, we're also human. Can we not expand this? And that, I think, appeals to the human sense of fairness. Critical, 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 critical. Can I come back to Ireland, actually, just mm. I want to for people who are listening in Ireland to this the discussion um, that in the wake of the death of George Floyd or the killing of George Floyd in America um, in May in on my Facebook timeline, a lot of people I knew were talking about white privilege and white fragility. Now, I wanted to engage in discussion with them. I was aware of your work 
and I knew that they were linking into critical race theory, mm. but it, it it became really difficult for me to do it because if I did it, the danger was that then people would label me as as racist. But I wanted to make the point that Ireland's history is so utterly different to the history of America mm. that we understand race in Ireland in, in a very different way. Um, so have you any tips for like how to deal with this when people start saying that you've got to address your white privilege and mm. your white fragility I, in that yeah, sense? I very I think a, a very simple response is is needed in which I do not share those premises. As you point out, the critical race theory has been um, produced in a very specific American um, context in which black people and white people shared a country but the black people were either enslaved or subordinated class there's there's um this this is something that isn't going to be overcome immediately this is something that is going to be being worked through for some considerable time for the the uk it's a different situation we also oppressed um lots of minority um groups but but the people that who were oppressed by the british empire don't actually usually live here so we have a different attitude to address. In Ireland, of course, um, you were colonised for 800 years by the British. And so this is a different um, situation again. But the critical race theory doesn't really allow for this kind of nuance. It would still insist on, on telling somebody, an Irish person who perhaps had never read anything of critical race theory or was not particularly familiar with an American context would still insist that they had nevertheless been socialized into um, white supremacy and um, this this whole sort of very simplistic system. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things that really struck me was my friends who were saying this stuff were the most non-racist people that I, I know. I mean, they're, they're actively anti-racist and they're constantly trying to make the world a better place in, in whatever community mm. uh, groups they might be in. And next thing they're coming out and they're saying, oh, OK, look, I'm, I'm involved in, in this in, in racism because I'm white. And I'm trying to say to them, no, you're not necessarily, <laughs> you know, mm. but it becomes a difficult kind of conversation to have, I think, because it's seen as the only way to look at it today. And if you challenge it, well, that means you're you're part of it. Yeah, that we've got the the whole sort of Kafka trap in there, where the system is set up. You have the choice of being either racist and in denial, or racist and self aware enough to recognise that you are and to be doing the work of dismantling your white privilege. So there is a, a real incentive there to pretend to be racist or convince yourself that you must be, but you just haven't. Um, you haven't been aware of it because you have that privilege that keeps you from being aware of these assumptions that that you have. If you try to disagree from a, a different perspective, then you will be accused of um, taking... Robin D'Angelo calls it a, a variety of defensive moves. So according to D'Angelo, to be... Anybody who responds to being confronted with their own racism as a white person, uh, if they disagree, uh, go away or stay quiet, those are all signs of fragility. It's a defensive move because you don't want to confront your complicity in racism. The only way to not be fragile is to remain there and verbally agree that that is the case. So this is totally unfalsifiable there's no way out of this where you can legitimately disagree if you read um d'angelo her book just essentially shuts down every kind of escape route anybody could possibly have for, for arguing that they are not socialized into this racist ideology but would she would she just say like is uh, according to d'angelo is every white person racist every... is it that extreme no, because it's nothing to do with the individual, because society is racist. So she would say that every white person who is, who has been born and raised in a white dominant society like America, like the UK, um, and Ireland, yeah, has been socialised into this um, this kind of racial 
understanding of the world. You, she says it is absolutely impossible to have avoided it. You cannot help um, but take on these assumptions. And that is what she believes that everybody will do. I mean, Jim um, had this wonderful meme sent to him and it has um, Freud at the top saying, I see, it's not that I want to have sex with my mother, it's that everybody wants to have sex with their mother. And then we have D'Angelo saying, see, it's not that I'm racist, <laughs> it's that everybody's racist. But if you read through the, through White Fragility and, and other work of D'Angelo, what she does is she tells you um, assumptions that she herself has made. So when she approached, um, was going to a party and she thought at first that everybody else at the party that she was going to was black and she felt unsure of herself and out of place, then um, that isn't just her perspective. It wasn't that she was particularly racially aware and um, it, it must be that all white people uh, would feel right. like that if, if they were a minority in a, in a room. And you just can't argue with that. And I her book is like in the bestsellers, I would imagine in Ireland, but it's definitely up there in Amazon and America, the UK. Is yeah. it in the UK? Would it be? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was. So it was um, in it was for over six months. It was in the um, in the New York Times bestseller list. Then it sold out again after the killing of Mr. Floyd. So it's. Um, yeah, it's a very, very popular one because it's clear, because it's simple. It gives people something they can do. So quite a few critical race theorists aren't actually that keen on D'Angelo. They think she's focusing again too much on, on white people and it's not actually um, looking at the, the writings and the theories of African-Americans. So that's that that's an interesting point because it isn't that everybody in critical race theory has taken the D'Angelo approach. Ibram Kendi, for example, has quite a different approach. He retains some confidence in the individual in all, who can right. um, choose to believe or not believe racist ideas to support or not support racist policies. He, there's a, an entirely different set of problems associated with him. He is quite authoritarian, but he's not coming from the postmodern discourse perspective that D'Angelo is. Uh, I actually saw he has a book in the bestsellers in Amazon, which is uh, for how to make your baby anti-racist. Yeah. yeah. Or toddlers. And there was one for adults then as well. OK, so that's there. So there's two different kind of strands of critical race theory. Then one is postmodern and one is not necessarily so postmodern. Yeah, I mean, in the with the the most sort of scholarly theorists, there's um, a materialist side and a postmodern side. So you have somebody like Derek Bell, who was a materialist, and so he would have considered himself to be evidence based, and he would be looking at systems in the in sort of material um, systems, government, law, politics. So they're not focused so much on attitudes and biases. So he, right. So would you? Sorry, can, can I ask then? Would you be more in favour of that materialist um, stance then, or it, is it all? Or would you be critical equally of it? It's a, a different kind of criticism. So the materialist critical race theorists are the radical feminists, are what the radical feminists are to the trans activists. So you, you see, we've got right. these two different strands. We've got the materialists who come from the Marxist tradition and they see um, class, things in, in terms of class, whether it's actually economic class or it's a class of men and a class of women, and there's one oppressing the other. And so you get, um, with them, you get an, uh, an appreciation for objective reality. You get a reasoned argument, but you also get this kind of conspiracy um, mentality, which is a different problem from the one we see with the postmodern. Um, so the postmodern feminists will be the intersectionals and the queer theorists. They will take a position most, you, you see the opposition mostly when you've got the radical feminists who are referred to as TERFs and the trans activists who are coming from a queer theory perspective. So this is the oppositions that run throughout the different kinds of theory. Sorry, yes, I, I, I am. 
no, I, I, like, uh, honestly, I've been fascinated by and taken up with uh, looking at gender in the last few years. Mm. And so I am pretty aware of the different things. And I've been yeah. called a turf because I do think biology matters, but I'm not a radical feminist. No. I'm very much in favour of uh, trans people having rights, but it's a very difficult um, discussion to even engage in because like if you take one viewpoint, you're accused of one thing. If you take another, you're accused of another. Mm. But I actually think there's a generational divide as well. I'm of an age where um, gender, it just wasn't a thing when I was growing up. Like mm. the concept of gender, gender was just like you were a man or a woman, where it is it, it became an identity way more recently. And I think for my, like I see teenagers now and people in their 20 somethings and they look at me like I'm a dinosaur and I'm trying to understand their perspective, but mm. it's so different. You yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, that that was why I, I wanted to bring up the, the difference between the rad femmes and the, the trans activists, because I think that does show the divide and the way it works in various different different ways. But with the radical feminists, we've got this position where women are a biological class that are oppressed by men as a biological class because of their reproductive systems. So you will hear um, really quite a, from the, from the radical feminists, not from everybody who calls themselves gender critical, but you'll hear this quite um, complicated conspiracy theory about how trans women and those who um, support their rights are actually men's rights activists who are trying to um, support the patriarchy by giving uh, men, which they consider trans women to be, uh, access to women's spaces and even women's identities. So this gets, you can see this kind of conspiracy mentality where you must believe the same thing as me, otherwise you're part of this horrible oppressive system. But then we have the trans activists um, who are coming from a queer theory approach and they take a very different um perspective they see gender as something that is both important and socially constructed so they want people to be able to choose their own gender to not be put in any boxes because it comes from queer theory and there's this idea that it's the existence of solid categories that oppress people and so we need to be particularly supportive of those who don't fit neatly into feminine woman attracted to men or masculine man attracted to women and so we have this um this kind of war where the, the trans activists will call the gender critical feminists turfs and transphobes and the gender critical feminists will call the trans activists misogynists and then in the middle there's the liberals who are saying look trans people are really vulnerable and they need some support Women also need their own spaces and to be able to compete fairly in sports. Can we not please just try to <laughs> have a conversation here without this being a zero-sum um, issue? But it's, I don't think that they, there will ever be a bridge between those two. And that's the I, worst I might, of it. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I, I think that might mean that I'm a liberal. I don't, yes. I don't know. But... But uh, like, can you s in some ways, it's like they're speaking different languages and yeah. because it's different languages, they can't actually understand the different languages because it's ideas that are so different. Yes, they're working uh, on different frameworks. Yeah. So can you see any solution to the to that? I, I think that, you know, the, the liberal one, as I'm saying, if that can see both of their positions, I, I just wrote um, a piece for Aereo called The Need for Ideological Theory of Mind. And I used those two groups. If they understood each other's framework and were prepared to use a little bit of charity, then some kind of conversation could happen. So I, I think that the solution to this kind of um, hyper-polarised divide, which is driven by narratives which are, are just completely opposed and people not being able to get into each other's, I think this can best be opposed by the rest of us, which I, I still believe is the majority, trying to renormalize an expectation of charity, of reasoned argument, of evidence, of trying to trying to be kinder, trying to be more honest and more open and actually valuing um, discussion, trying to understand what the other person actually means. <laughs> 
Is it uh, an important part, an element, an important element of that? I just wonder, is it to get away from this idea of a kind of an oppression um, competition? I'm I'm oppressed. No, I'm more oppressed. No, that group is even more oppressed. Do you think we need to get away from that entirely? Or is that important that we do take that into consideration? I, I think we're seeing a very unhealthy um, understanding of victimhood at the moment. Yeah, the, the best book for this is um, Campbell and Manning's The Rise of Victimhood Culture, where we're seeing that there's now a sort of an attachment of, of virtue and status to somebody who is considered to have um, conflicting marginalised identities that are sort of compounding each other because they are believed to have access to knowledge which isn't part of the mainstream discourse. So they can see and understand mainstream discourse because they have to live in it, but they also have extra knowledge and experience and perception because of their position in society in relation to this. So they are given a kind of both more status and respect as somebody who can know things on more levels, but also a kind of um, compensatory uh, privilege almost in a way that um, because you have been so multiply oppressed you must now be considered authoritative and um, and protected so it's it's really quite horrible <laughs> yeah and it takes away an individual agency I mean people tell me I'm oppressed because I'm a woman I'm like no I'm not oppressed <laughs> so uh, um, although I do understand the biological reality I do I, I, I get that argument and I would be you know, I would support that argument, but at the same time, I don't get this like pervasive misogyny and the no. patriarchy idea. So um, I better let you go. It's a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> even though this is this probably won't go out until later in the week because Terry will put in some music. Um, is there any um, just one last question? What can we do? I mean, I do. I think your book is so important. I think that is a step that's kind of putting a cog in the wheel and that might stop it or slow it down. But is there anything else that we can do, do you think? I, I think we can just try to be more accepting of other ideas as, as far as we can. You know, if you're a left-wing um, person, then, then try to have some charity and some understanding for people on the right and, and vice versa so that we can try and reduce the polarisation. The, the ideal society is one in which an ethical and reasonable right is in negotiation with an ethical and reasonable left. That isn't what we've got at the moment. We've got a full-out war and lack of communication. So anything that will help us to get back to genuine communication across political divides is, is something I think we should be doing. it for this episode of Spokes with thanks to our guest Helen Pluckrose. If you like our work please do subscribe. Like and subscribe and share the video. <laughs> there is no video. <laughs> Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.